Hello and welcome to the 145th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developer themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is Embers of Miriam by Creative Bites. Sean and Frank, who are you both and what do you do? Well, I am Sean Jackson. I am the Chief Creative Officer at Creative Bytes, and I'm also the Art Director on Embers of Miriam. Many hats. What about you, Frank? Mm-hmm. Hey, my name is Frank Knezic. I am Design Director slash Programmer uh, for Embers of Miriam at Creative Bytes. Thank you for coming on the show. It's great having you both. Um, Thanks for having us. Now, the second question uh, I've got for you is uh, where did you made your start? So I'm going to fire off to, to Frank and then we'll flip to Sean on that one. Frank, well, how did you make your start making flashy, lighty video games? Well, I guess I went to school for math, eventually transitioned into computer science, okay. got out of university and game. I loved games, always played games my whole life, mm-hmm. but never for some reason, never thought of it as a possibility. It's not quite the same way the school systems are now, which have programs dedicated to game design and you, like engines like Unity where you can make stuff on your own. Yeah. Uh, so I was working for a financial company, basically, and uh, via friend of a friend got connected back in, into the video game industry and f- started working at Silicon Knights probably, I guess, seven or eight years ago. Uh, and worked there for about five years, and from there eventually worked on another s- small independent game, and then came over to Creative Bytes. That's that's quite a story. Mo- yeah, yeah. Mo- mostly working as a programmer throughout all those early games. Okay, okay. But now you're making your way into the realm of designing, and uh, thanks to the yes, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fantastic. So, uh, is it sort of low level programming you've developed, and then you sort of, you know assembly, or is it sort of more high level? I uh, no, like C no, I was doing like yes, C plus plus, C sharp. Okay. Uh, was doing mostly gameplay systems, combat mechanics, and stuff like that at Silicon Knights. Okay, brilliant. Do you remember your very first game you made? Uh, that I that I worked on? No, just made. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I love answering this question. It was you know. probably, but now that I think about it, a quick basic trivia game. There you go. Uh, in high school, <laughs> would have been the first one, a movie trivia game. Right. Oh yeah, that works. Bit of you know, if and or. Yeah. Yeah. Logic. Yay. Awesome. Absolutely. That's, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Ultimately, uh, take a drink, everyone. But computers are just a series of switches. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they are and you just say when, yep. that, when that one's off oh, that I, one over there one my, is on in that same class I uh, <laughs> my computer science teacher in high school yeah. we all loved video games and we would ask him questions about video games Yeah, and he would always say the same thing he's like oh they're all just pong anyway you hit something <laughs> it hits it back <laughs> we used to love that guy <laughs> oh, there's, there's, there's a man who's like full of poetry Sean, uh-huh. Sean, how did you make your start making these these things that are video games that we love so much? All right, so uh, I I think like my the real inception of like me wanting to make video games started back uh, in Resident Evil Two days. I remember I was in grade eight at the time, and uh, I remember like playing with my brother, and, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, this is absolutely amazing i want to do this when i grow up i don't care what it is i just want to make video games when i grow up so like frank said it's like it's not the it wasn't the same school uh programs that we have today in terms of um you know game design programs and universities and colleges and things like that uh it was pretty slim pickings back in the early 2000s and um i always thought that i needed to get into like have some sort of like math degree or be well versed in like all these different forms of calculus so (laughs) that's how i built it up in in high school i was like prepared to go to, to university for this and um from there, I uh, instead went into like a digital media arts program. 
And it kind of gave me a very broad spectrum of just digital interactive digital media from like web design and um, like anim 3D animation, life drawing and, and things like that. Uh, so from there, I, I learned about this other program. It was a it was a new program. It was it was like I'm pretty sure it was called um, like just gaming or something like that. But in actuality, it was making art for video games. And I always had like an artistic side to, to myself. Uh, I never really thought to explore it and develop it because I always thought making video games was primarily either coding or design. It's like the, the art of it always felt um, like that wasn't my destiny. Uh, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> so I actually got into uh, this, this highly sought after program um, at, at Seneca College in Toronto and uh, I was just surrounded by by these really, really talented people. Um, there was only 13 of us uh, in this eight-month course. And I, I was, like, sitting shoulder to shoulder with people who have, like, done, like, uh, like paintings for, like, Transformer comics and, like, um, all of, like, these uh, crazy, talented, traditional artists. And and uh, having prior knowledge of, like, 3D animation and rigging and, and character modeling and, and that sort of thing, um, they really saw a value in me because I was more of, like, the, the technical art side. And... It, it was kind of a trade-off. We started um, kind of like exchanging tips and tricks and things like that. So while I helped them get better at the technical side of of, of uh, 3D game art, they started giving me a lot of like tips and tricks and really bolstering my my traditional art. And so, um, like all kind of mentor-mentee relationships, I, I got better and better. And from there, uh, at the end of the eight-month program, I got a job uh, as a 3D modeler at Ubisoft Montreal. Wow. And and from and pretty much all all of us got jobs. It was back back in kind of like the wild wild west of video games in what was it 2005. Okay. Uh, so they were just gobbling people up. Uh, anyone who who was uh, 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 exuded any sort of talent, right? Mm. So. Um, I got thrown onto my first project, which was uh, Rainbow Six Vegas, and I was uh, a modeler for that in pre-production, and then I worked my way up as like a texture art texture artist, and then uh, eventually kind of like just a, a general environment artist. Um, and then from there, after Ubisoft, that was probably 2005, I think it was, and then I got a I since then got a job at um, Silicon Knights. Uh, that was some sometime in 2007. Right. And uh, I, I worked there pretty much to the to the end uh, with Frank, and that's where I met uh, Paul and Frank. Right. Uh, I worked with them uh, on a few projects, and yeah, after that, Paul and I started uh, Creative Bytes. And because we we just wanted to get get ourselves uh, money basically because we were out of jobs and uh, we didn't want to leave the Niagara region and we had families and and wives who had really good jobs really good stable jobs I, I would say mm. and um, we we both were had families like young children so we just didn't want to move and start like pack up the family and move to California to go work for Sony or, or I, don't, I don't know who wherever right yeah yeah so yeah could have been anywhere uh, from, could have been anywhere yeah it really could be yeah. especially in the video game industry you could you could be all over the world yes yeah, so um, I've I've read some pretty horrible horror stories about this one woman having to traipse across the the country being constantly being being laid off and uh, it's pretty horrible but yeah so you decided no let's let's forge our own path yes exactly and, and this was a time where um kind of like the indie movement was uh gaining a lot of traction yeah and it uh, like the the big monolithic studios were kind of like either downsizing and and just in in terms of their portfolios they were all getting consolidated into safe uh major ips mm -hmm. uh so from there uh paul and i kind of like bootstrapped our company on uh service work 
we we took out um, we got like contracts and things like that for uh, helping out other smaller uh, independent game studios, and uh, then we eventually landed uh, a bigger contract for Skylander Superchargers, and. So Paul and Frank, that's where we brought Frank on because we knew he was still in the area. He was super talented and he fit culturally. So we started, uh, we, <laughs> we convinced him to, to join our, 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 our mission <laughs> and to uh, help us out with that, that project. So it was primarily Paul and Frank. They helped bring, how many characters was it? It was 170 characters or something yeah, we like that? Had a- we had a section of those characters. I don't know how many, like they were divided up again among amongst a bunch of people, but it was basically yeah. retroactively fitting in online support to mm-hmm. old legacy characters for their new game. Yeah. So it was uh, a, a major under undertaking. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience working with uh, Vicarious Visions on that. And uh, it really kind of, um, Gave, gave us our studio like uh, the significance that it needed and, and that purpose and drive that, hey, like this is going to work and we can um, we can really forge our own path here. And then that really got us into developing our own IP. Uh, we got funding. <laughs> the nice thing about uh, uh, developing video games in Canada and especially in Ontario, Canada, is that there are uh, government programs that uh, both federal and provincial government programs that could uh, uh, help you um, uh, fund some of your own IP. So we're, we're extremely fortunate for, for that. And we definitely feel like the pain that uh, some of our American friends feel in terms of living on ramen noodles and, you know, living in uh, on what you can afford to try and make your own game and, and hope that it hits. Mm. So we were fortunate enough to, to be at the right place at the right time and uh, really uh, put our roots down in Niagara and uh, forge our own path. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's wonderful, isn't it? Ever since I believe the critical year was 2007. You may disagree, but I think when the indie sort of section of indie games come on Xbox Live, that was the turning point. Like, wait, what are these weird mm-hmm. indie? What are these? What? Oh God! <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and some of them are terrible, uh, but some of them were just amazing as well. You know, uh, Mount Your Friends is still still one of the ridiculous, stupid games, but people still love it and. And it's just there's uh, also on if you look at the platforms like the mobile platforms, the smartphone. When the, when the iPhone uh, arrived, love it or loathe it, that uh, that, um, that did some amazing things to that side of things. Up until then, it was generally mm. well, they were terrible. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, well, not all of them. Well, it, I think in the movie too, it's like that really kind of uh, put a spotlight on uh, on how successful indie games can actually become. Yes. Yes, good old Phil. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely remember I had found Geometry Wars, the original, in Project Gotham Racing yep. before <laughs> and loved it. Yeah. And then I remember when Xbox 360 came out, they were talking about the arcade and what that was going to be. Yeah. And Geometry Wars 2 was the game I was the most excited for yeah. at the launch of Xbox 360. So I was pretty into the small games and indie scene on there yeah. right right out of the gate and i mean you're right some are great some aren't but there's a lot of good games on there and uh it's we're glad to be part of that yeah and, hopefully and it, now yes and it's now given i mean you were at the indie booth at pax east it was it was monstrous i mean i i, t- it I t- really t- was i tried to get photos of it i couldn't I couldn't fit it in one frame. It was absurd. Definitely a panoramic shot from the escalator. That's what I got. But even the pedestrian walkway that was dividing the entire conference center, you still couldn't see beyond the horizon. You couldn't. You couldn't. It was huge compared to any other booth. And right you have to factor in the curvature of the earth. You did. And that, and yeah, if everyone's been to PAX East, that venue is huge, it's vast. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if you need to get Even, when I was doing appointments, I was very careful. Like, I'm, I need to go way over there. <laughs> I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, Pack Pack South is a little smaller scale, but I found that the interest in the 
the indie game sections was huge. Uh, it, we had a really good amount of people play the game and enjoy the game there. So yeah. those, that was my first time to any big expos like that. Okay. And it was awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. That awesome. was my 17th PAX. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> nice. So yeah, I've been going since 2008. So yeah. And, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for the, uh, PAX West tickets to go on. So I don't buy tickets because of media and something, but it's, it's the land grab for the hotels. That's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. The only way to describe it is land grab. It's like, oh god, no, I'm now in somewhere in Azerbaijan. <laughs> so, uh, how? Well, you've already given a big story about where you come from, where you are now. It's fantastic and very inspirational. Speaking of inspirations, what do you find you you're drawn to as regards to creators? Uh, what influences you the most? You take this one, Frank. Uh, I, for me, I like in terms of video games. Yeah. I play a lot of different stuff. Right. I tend to gravitate more towards action and adventure games and platformers, but I also play RPGs. I'll play anything. Yeah. I buy everything. I pl- I play everything, and I can find a great experience in any genre, pretty much. But I just really I love playing games, and I look for fun and variety and pacing in games the most that, that those are the games I really tend to play in hundred percent or platinum trophy, get a thousand achievements games that I just kind of get gripped into the world. Uh, it's the difficulty isn't too extreme, but it's just a free flowing experience. And those are the games that I, I really love playing. And it certainly comes out in members of Miriam that I've got to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that like, one of the biggest focuses was variety and pacing. Yeah, because uh, you can. We took so a lot of. You go. Oh, right. Okay, and I can just do this over and over again. You can't do that, members. You can't. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we took like a, an adventure platforming approach where you. It is a platforming game, but we wanted uh, like puzzles, like slower contemplative moments, along with traditional platforming and just experimenting with our new mechanic, which we should say is uh, the ability for the hero of our game, Miram, to split into two embers, one controlled with the left stick, one controlled with the right stick. You navigate them and then recombine on the other side of things. So we wanted to present platforming scenarios where you can use that and make that interesting, but I wanted to be influenced by games, like my favorite games, like Uncharted and Tomb Raider and Rayman, and try to keep the the variety and just always something new presenting itself. Where you just when you're trying or feeling the burn of something, move on to something else, and hopefully get a nice cycle in our game of like j- good flow and just fun overall. Just to be a, a fun experience. I love games where I get lost in them, and fun is always the goal. Number one. <laughs> What about you, Sean? What's the thing that uh, you find yourself gravitating towards? Um, well, in in terms of like uh, d- just art in general, I'm I'm just gravitated to um, a whole bunch of like different uh, like concepts, art artists, and things like that. Uh, ArtStation and Pinterest are usually like my my go tos for for inspiration and. Okay. Um, like mood boards and things like that. I, I love kind of like the whole dark and moody. Uh, I love horror films and I, and I, I love the, the whole ambiance and, and the, the mood that they establish, uh, especially in terms of like uh, lighting and atmosphere. I, I always find like you, you see kind of like in um, like Ridley Scott's, like, like in aliens and things like that, but it's always dark, but it's, uh, it's always kind of like brightly lit and uh, getting the, that that ominous feel and and uh, that sort of thing uh having that wash over the audience is kind of like it what what kind of like really inspires me to to go out and try and like recreate some of those things um i also kind of like like fantasy like adventure genres like uh, just even in, in movies um uh, I, I really gravitate towards kind of like skies and environments because that's kind of my my bag uh, i really like building environments I, I love like new techniques uh, really dramatic dynamic skies and things like that 
because uh, I used to do a lot of those at uh, Silicon Knights. Um, yeah, I'm always into kind of like uh, tech papers and things like that, like new things that uh, like either like you'll find in like CryEngine or, or like Unreal or, or Unity, like the, they all kind of, they all have like brilliant minds behind those those sets of architectures. And, and it's always, and as an artist, like we get to use uh, those frameworks and those tools and things like that to, to build like stunning pieces of, of art. So I'm always uh, gravitated to like, all sorts of like mediums in terms of art, but like video games is just kind of, just kind of my thing. Like, yeah, like Frank said, it's like Uncharted, like Tomb Raider. Uh, I love Halo. I, um, I'm, I'm a huge Halo nerd. That blue sky. But, uh, you know, in the, uh, yeah, it was, it wasn't entirely blue. There were bits as it went to the horizon. Does that, yeah, amazing. Mm-hmm. Right. You're right, and yeah, it's just like those those things, those subtle changes that just kind of like make make a, a person feel the way they do about a piece. I I really kind of thrive on on that, um, but I'm always more towards like the dramatic and moody and and those types of pieces. Mm. Good answers, both. Well done. So my last well, last last question, the penultimate question of the first half. There's one more to come. What developer do you most admire in the industry and why? Frank, what do you we go to that one? Uh I mean my go to answer was Naughty Dog. <laughs> uh okay. from a from a design standpoint, it's it's not even the the art for me for me, even though it's amazing on all their games. Yeah. I love their control mechanics and their almost one to one nature of controller movement to action on screen i remember playing the first crash bandicoot and it felt so responsive uh the pivots and changing direction was even though in uncharted games there's animations playing during that i i don't feel like pivots and movement is affecting my ability to control the game where in other games i feel like uh sometimes the animation is driving the movement more than my controller mm. so i've always really loved uh i was one of the f- I was early and on board on Uncharted. I remember going around the offices talking about how good it was, and I've definitely loved all of their games, probably Uncharted 2 the most. And I... Who else? Uh, There's... Like Nintendo, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just in general, I, mean, I, I grew up. I grew up on Nintendo, yeah. so yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, that's really where my love of video games started, and uh, they're great games. You can still play now. Super Metroid, yeah, obviously. I, I managed and, to uh, get a NES Classic. Um, I mean, oh, nice. yeah, I did it because I pre-ordered it as soon as they announced it. Oh, they're not going to. They're, they're not going to. They're going to make about ten of those. So I immediately pre-ordered it, and then you know. Well, uh, yeah. My gut was, oh, this thing is literally printing money. They're never going to stop making them. Oh, really? And, oh, no, no, it's the other way. It's the other I was so wrong. Yeah, it's so wrong. No, it's Nintendo. Nintendo. <laughs> so don't think, they yeah. don't think like that. They think in a different plane of existence. So, no, I immediately pre-ordered it and just walked into the store and just picked it up with another controller with it as well, by the way. I went, yeah, there you go. That's fine. Nice. And then I saw everyone like going nuts. Going, I can't buy these. Like, well, no, you should have pre-ordered it. They're not going to make any. <laughs> I should have, you know, I warned you. I warned you. You know, but, yeah, what are you going to do? But uh, no, good answer. I know. I know those are kind of cliche choices, but I really do feel like they they make amazing games. Cliches exist because they're right. <laughs> That's what makes yeah. them so it's okay. And and I would say in like uh, Ubisoft, I love all of the Ubi art framework games. So. Okay. Uh, both Rayman's Child of Light, Valiant Hearts. Uh, Ooh, I really like that game. art style. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I wish I wish they were making more games with that engine because I love the look of it and I've loved every game I've played on it mm. so far. Not enough towers. Sure. <laughs> 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 Sorry, no offense to your uh, employees, but yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess. Uh, just kind of piggybacking off of like what Frank said, it's like, of course I, I love like the, like the AAA developer developers, like, like Monolith and Bungie and three, four, three and naughty dog and things like that. They all kind of, they're, they're kind of like these, 
these massive like industry leaders that always are like pushing uh, same with dice. I, I love all of like the the battlefield stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it it really kind of like speaks to to my style and and in uh, in art choices and things like that. I, I always am like uh, flabbergasted by like uh, the stuff that comes out of uh, dice. Um, uh, I'll speak to kind of like more of the indie developers that have been uh, certainly influential. Uh, on Creative Bytes, uh, uh, first uh, first and foremost, um, Drinkbox Studios in Toronto. They have uh, they did Guacamole and uh, Severed. Um, Both excellent, uh, excellent games. We mean to get on the show, mm-hmm. but uh, an elusive lot. But I need to I need to try. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. They yeah. they've really helped us. They've really helped us a bunch. Um, just even uh, getting our start um, uh, as Creative Bite Studios and and getting into uh, kind of like the whole uh, service work and that sort of thing. They've they've really been a, a good mentor to us, and uh, we can't thank them enough uh, for for a lot of that stuff. Um, same thing with uh, Phantom Compass. Uh, they're actually neighbors to us. They they do uh, Rollers of the Realm, and they have uh, a game coming out, uh, Auto Age, as well. They're, they've been around for a long time, and um, they've really helped us out, uh, giving advice and things like that. Definitely from like the business end, and mm. and um, helping us out with like contracts and you know employees. Uh, nice little mutual uh, uh, benefits that we we share when when you're neighbors. Um, definitely, like we've we met a lot of like really cool indie developers uh, the past little while. The the guys from Thunder Lotus, they've they've got Sundered coming out. They did uh, Jotun uh, before that, and uh, also Borealis Games. They uh, they did uh, Mages of Australia. Uh, yeah, we've I think got that's them. Out now. We've, we'll be having them on a, a later show. So yeah, uh, yep. yeah. I think yeah, their game's just out today on Steam. Yes. Oh yeah. I, I, yeah. Uh, I backed it because I'm like that. When I see something like yeah, that, yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to back that. Sorry, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm a serial Kickstarter backer. I, I backed Gloom. Oh, yeah. I, I backed Gloomhaven Second Edition because why wouldn't you? <laughs> Especially after playing that. <laughs> but no, yeah, I'm looking forward yeah. to chatting to those uh, chaps next uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so I, I think in in terms of like the independent studios, like the the, the real like indie game developers, mm. we. Um, it's a, it's a small community, believe it or not, but uh, and and you see people at shows and and you introduce yourself and you're like, oh, you're those guys. And it's like I always wanted to meet you and yeah. and the two minutes so it's down a really nice and you traveled three thousand miles to meet each other. That's quite funny. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I might throw in one other okay. like in, uh, developer. Uh, Housemark, mm. who make oh yeah, Love like in terms of twin stick mechanics and stuff like that. I love all of their games on PlayStation. I played Super Stardust forever. Uh, Dead Nation. Dead Nation. I love Rezogun, and uh, yeah. they're another one that I I love. Ooh, yeah. yeah, all these amazing. Yeah, we are uh, Kindred Spirits has got the games. They're, they're amazing. All of these ones you're listening, like yep, Jotun, yep, yep, yep. Oh God, yeah, that one, yes. Yeah, well, well, mm-hmm. well chosen. Obviously, it's just a there's a microcosm of creativity in that that one concentrated place. That's amazing. Awesome. Okay. Um, so my last question, in the first half. Because all good things come to an end, even halves. What are you playing right now? That goes to Frank. What are you playing right now? Okay, so I would say most of my time right now is being occupied by Neo. On PlayStation Four, uh, it's a. No, I know what it is. Yes, it's uh, Neo, isn't it? Okay. Is yeah. How do you pronounce <laughs> it? Really, is it Neo? Let's just go. I think it. it's Neo. Yeah, I think it's Neo or something like that. Uh, yeah, something around there. Yeah. yeah, but I have been obsessed with this game. I've been playing it whenever I have free time. I'm, I'm almost level 100. Last section of the game, so, and so it's an action adventure game, very difficult, similar to Dark Souls in that. Yes. Genre. I can't believe Dark Souls I've always a genre now, but there it is. <laughs> and it's weird because I've tried so hard to get into Dark Souls. I try them every time, and even Bloodborne. And each time, I get a little more acclimated to the to the design style, yeah. but just a little too difficult for me. Yeah. But this one, for whatever reason, I think maybe because it's more offensively based, or I've played uh, Ninja Gaiden games in the past, that it just kind of worked. Right. And I got hooked on this game 
big time, and it's actually detracted from my time playing stuff like uh, Horizon and Zelda. Which is even though yeah, I've played a, yeah. I've played a bit of those, but another smaller game that I've been playing a ton of is Flinthook. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, wow. Wow. Which is. I love, uh, and that's got an extremely addictive, I'm not a super expert on the rogue-like genre and stuff like that. I guess Flint Hook, it would be called a roguelite, maybe? I Mm. I might be wrong on that. It's strange sloshing about terms. Basically, it's persistence from one game session to the other. Yes. That's what I I believe is is roguelike. I I love that game. And another Canadian get, game. Yes, yes. And I would say, lastly, I'll just mention um, what remains of Edith Finch. Oh, I yes. bought that and completed that, and just did it all one night. And I, I was really impressed by it. I loved it a lot, and the different uh, game mechanics within, and how each uh, dream or uh, memory had a unique gameplay idea that uh, reinforced the themes of that uh, section. I thought it was really well done, and Mm. I was a big fan. What about you, Sean? Well, I've got a huge uh, video game debt (laughs) currently. You've got that. Oh, my goodness, Uh, because I have, like, two young kids. Uh, One's 11 months old, and the other one's three and a half. So the time, and and especially trying to, like, finish off Embers and Miram, it's like you, over the past year, it's been uh, quite difficult to get in some time. However, I did uh, finally finish uh, Halo 5's campaign. Okay. (laughs) And uh, I couldn't do it. It's just like, oh. Well, done three, four, three. What have you done? I I know. <laughs> I, I I dare I say it. I think that's the only game that I've played where I I, I really wanted it to just end. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I felt like I, I was doing things over and over again. But yeah. you know what? It was still fun. And and I'm like I said, I'm a huge Halo fan, and I'll play everything and everything that they come out with. Um, uh, also, like Shadow Mordor, uh, recently like finished that like pretty much got yeah, every, all the achievements and all that stuff. Everyone was going, oh, loads of developers are going to copy this. Nope. <laughs> yeah. It, it, there's something that just really clicked. And, and I, I really love like the Lord of the Rings franchise. Yes, he does. Well, you know, I love the books. And, you know, I remember as a kid listening to the Radio 4 play. Again, British, sorry. But, oh, you yeah. know, that the, the play of... Um, they did a, a, an enactment of Lord of the Rings years and years and years and years before... They did the films, of course. So, so yeah. if you can listen to it, which they've got it on archive, not archive, but you can, it's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And that got me into the books. Uh, in, yeah. And then they're like, well, who's Tom Bombadil? Oh, God. Oh, yeah. God. Please yeah. stop singing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> about, it's leads yeah. me to my the next game that I'm still currently playing all these years later. And I, I have no idea how old it is now, but Battle from Middle Earth on PC, wow. uh, it's an RTS, and yes. I still play that. And it's like when I don't want to get into like uh, like a console game, it's like you go and sit down on the couch or anything because yeah. uh, either my, one of my young children are watching TV. Uh, I'll play on, on the computer and just play like skirmishes and things like that. It is so old and still in a four by three aspect and amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I, I do stream actually once a week. And uh, what well, I've done about sort of twenty-eight episodes, and I've streamed twenty-eight different games on twenty-eight different platforms. Um, oh, really? That's cool. Yeah, um, some of them are like, "What? He's playing a game on an Atari ST." <laughs> oh God! And I was. I mean, yeah. And I was playing Amiga games. I was playing thirty-two X games. Seriously, yeah, and it's, it's all <laughs> not emulated. This is genuinely hard, genuine hardware. The A still works. <laughs> <laughs> and be yeah. managed to pipe through uh, an upscaler. It's amazing. Nice. Mm-hmm. I've I've got a pretty extensive uh, retro gaming collection at home, although it's been collecting dust lately. But <laughs> no, there's uh, an entire room dedicated. Yeah, to it. pretty much. <laughs> but um, I mean, speaking personally for my own games, I'm playing at the moment. The reason I raised that retro stuff is because I'm playing Jeff Minter's latest one, which is Polybius on the. Uh, oh yeah, PS- I've been- PSVR. And uh, yeah. I love Jeff to bits. I do. He's a lovely man. I've met him several times. But when I'm playing his games, I'm towards 
about maybe five minutes in, I'm yelling, what's this, Jeff? Oh, what is that supposed to be, Jeff? I can't even <laughs> see what I'm doing now, Jeff. And then... Well, I'm sorry. No, no, good. I mean, it's just... Finally, I'm, going, I'm realising that, wait, he's been making the same game for the past 35 years. <laughs> well, that that metal electronic bowl that's on the artwork is amazing, and I love it. So <laughs> I definitely... I love PlayStation VR. Yeah. I... I dabbled in just about everything on there, and I yeah. definitely want to pick that game up. Maybe it's a long weekend here. Might mm-hmm. pick that up this weekend, and uh, might pick up Farpoint as well. I'm yeah, still... I just took delivery of Farpoint, um, so uh, we'll see how that one goes. But I hear fellow my fellow reviewers are saying some very very good things about it, and I played it at an expo called EGX, which is like European Eurogamer Expo. Uh, and I played it, and, and I don't normally do VR games at expos because of fear of pink eye, which is not unjustified. Yeah. You know, yep. I'll, I'll never forget PAX pandemic pink eye. That was, oh, God, it still gives oh, me yeah. shivers. Um, but, yeah, to, 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 but I played it there, and I, I was just, even though I loathe spiders, and that's not a spoiler, everyone, it didn't really, the mm-hmm. game, Farpoint consists of people, of monsters trying to you know, separate your face from your head. Um, mm. You know, and that's basically the premise of the game. And uh, yeah, and I've got a little gun control with it, and it's just, it looks, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm charging the gun now. Nice. <laughs> so, because nice. so, so, uh, that's what you do when you get a new proof, it's got a battery in it. What do you do? Charge, Charge. the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I would mention one other game, actually, that I yes. played uh, near Automata <gasps> for PS4. I have not played enough of it, but I played like the first kind of world level, mm. and it is amazing. I, yes. I want to play that so much. If yeah. if Neo wasn't uh, controlling my life, that's yeah. what I would be playing because yeah. I was absolutely fascinated with the the way the camera changes and perspective and different type of shooting mechanics that are involved. Mm. That game totally impressed me. I would honestly say the first half of 2017 has been one of the best for games it's been ever. Ri- no, not, not, not only the best, but ridiculous. It's yeah, been it's so terrifying. Good. I've only gone two hours of Horizon Zero Dawn. What's wrong with me? Well, I know, that's how I feel too. I've got Zelda here. Oh, that's right, yeah. And everyone's saying, don't ever play those at the same time. Very bad idea. Because they're both, they're both open world games, so yeah, it's a good bad idea. Well, going, anyway. into, the year, going into the year, Horizon and... Uh, Zelda were the games I was like I cannot wait to play these <laughs> and it, I never would have believed it like Neo and Nier yeah. were not really on my radar at no. all I was aware of them but no. and if you'd have told me I, those are the games I would be obsessed with I would have never believed you and the fact that that's the case makes me so happy there's so much stuff to play well that's the end of the first half well done gents you've made it through you've, put, you've survived go you <laughs> Feel, bad, feel good about yourselves. But uh, let's get into the real core of the show where we go into the second half. We delve deep into Embers of Mirin. question you probably pitched this so many times but what is embers of miram embers of miram is an adventure platformer which features our main character miram which has a unique ability to split into two individual embers controlled with the left and right sticks and then recombine so you're navigating between traditional platforming and kind of a twin stick traversal method and along the way those 
light and dark embers will affect things in your environment. So creatures will respond one way to the light ember, a different way to the dark ember, and you're experimenting with those combinations to uh, solve puzzles. And we've had we have a huge focus on, as I said, variety of gameplay. So uh, puzzles, platforming, bosses, and hopefully in intense chase moments that really pacing and tons of stuff to do is the goal of the game and hopefully an exciting adventure from beginning to end that you don't want to put down no well uh, i'm certainly looking forward to it i've played a little bit of it but i need to delve far more but what i've experienced i've gleaned the following there is a dual control system as you've said for guiding two embers which makes up mirim He's kind of split. He's made up of two things, but I don't want to go into that. But uh, are you in any way, and I'm saying this from a point of view of an old person, uh, because my hand-to-eye coordination isn't as it was. And I'm just asking you, how have you managed to level uh, design levels that don't rely too heavily on dexterity on the part of the player when completing each level? Well, there, there's definitely been challenges in the progression. So one of the biggest things we found is when we put the first prototype together of the game, just handing off the, the twin stick movement or yeah. jump. It's almost a way of jumping, basically. Mm. You can look at it. Uh, people liked the idea, but didn't really use it the way we wanted them to or were struggling with the mechanic. So the first step of all this was trying to build a tutorial that really, without us telling anyone anything, taught that mechanic and brought someone to a point in the game where they could do what we call splitting, basically, mm. with as little assistance as possible, and like the foundation would be laid for the rest of the game. Uh, from there, it was definitely like putting together different scenarios, uh, like hopefully of increasing difficulty, and I definitely did a lot of play testing as well with uh, local college students to see what the difficulty curve was, what visual ideas were communicated well, which ones weren't, and constantly smoothing that curve out. So the puzzles aren't, I wouldn't say super challenging, but the goal is more of a pacing thing. It's uh, to break up fast-paced gameplay to more contemplative gameplay and just that's the main purpose of the puzzles okay um next question really is a build from the first one the first detailed design question that is how difficult has it been to design levels to accommodate this dual control system and that's to both you and sean how difficult has it been to create challenging and interesting levels with this system uh, pretty oh, pretty fine. difficult. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's uh, there's lots. Well, the good thing is it's a new idea in the the way we treat it in the game, right? Like other games have done uh, dual stick mechanics before, but ours is a little more uh, fast paced. You're switching back and forth between things, so there was some inspiration in terms of oh, what about this? I would kind of do motions with the sticks that. Uh, felt fun and natural and try to integrate that into gameplay setups. Uh, I would draw hearts all the time. I was obsessed with drawing hearts with the two characters. Uh, and so stuff like that like, somewhat paved the way for we have uh, hidden collectibles called glyphs where you are basically uh, split in half connect the dot puzzles where you trace along them with each of the sticks. So stuff like that and just what felt natural on a controller uh, dictated ideas and setups for the game. And then there were just like basic ideas uh, such as the tether mazes, which are two separate mazes where each of the light and dark embers are separated and navigating through their own maze. And you have to backtrack and go like help each one progress through them. So they just, I, I don't really have a great answer as to f where they came from. They just kind of happened. And I don't know, it was just experimenting. I guess one thing I could say is quickly prototyping ideas. So uh, Paul, our programmer, was really good at like wanting to switch something up. He would prototype it really quickly and we could uh, get it in the game and I would 
work with setups a bit and see what we thought, if it's fun, if not. Uh, but also just as a team trying to evaluate like gray box prototype stuff and see if there was potential there or what immediately stood out as the fun part or not fun part or being willing to cut stuff as well that uh, didn't work or people struggled with. There, One of the early prototypes was a, a double, triple, quadruple helix where you go back and forth with the left sticks and even doing something like that, I couldn't do it. I was very familiar with the mechanic. Your, your brain would just break at some point. So it, it's very interesting, even with that, what's in the game now, what's difficult or what sections of the game are more challenging is not uh, universal. Everyone brain, everyone's brain works differently and different setups are challenging to different people. It's been really interesting to see how that works, that it's, it's something different for everyone. Yeah, it definitely shows mm. from what I've experienced and played. It's just, it's a, um, I can just imagine it exploding into all sorts of like um, systems upon systems upon systems, yet still keeping the player engaged and not frustrated because that's the worst thing that can happen, you know. Because that you can that's that fine line, isn't it, between you know challenge and then frustration. And yeah, I, I remember I'll speak to like kind of like some of the earlier days when we were prototyping out um, uh, some sections and we we had we, we always referred to it as the tree puzzle, which actually wasn't like a tree. It wasn't a, a puzzle by any means. It was just a matter of like navigating through like this hollowed out tree. We actually still have it in the game because it's kind of like a little memento of like kind of where we started. It was it was kind of like in our minds was like a flagship setup. And now it's it's like we we look at that and it's like man that was so weak. <laughs> yeah. So you definitely learn a lot about the mechanic as you're going, and yeah. it's just hopefully you have enough time and you prototype on things quickly enough that you identify what works and what doesn't. And uh, it's inspiration for ideas is hard to pinpoint. One day you get yeah. ten, another day there's none. So yeah. a lot of luck too. <laughs> Yeah, same, same thing for the art in, in that regard. Um, we had never made uh, like a, a two and a half D side scrolling game before. We always came like we came from the triple A industry where everything was over the shoulder uh, or, or first person or something like that. And uh, getting some of those challenges were like even just perspective of the camera. Yeah. Uh, typical like 2D uh, platformers, they're, they're uh, um, isometric view. So you have zero perspective and you just have a parallax effect uh, in like these two and a half D games. Like, um, like I think Trine was like an earlier one that mm -hmm. kind of uh, really brought in a perspective camera into a side scrolling game. Um, you start introducing like these view challenges uh, when you uh, the player is kind of like off to one side and then you can come up to a ledge and then the player is completely disappeared just because of like the whole perspective, yeah. the vanishing point aspect. Yeah. So uh, just even developing an art style around that and, and a camera uh, FOV and things like it, it took a lot of iteration to really find our voice and into uh making uh, like the design work with the art and, and uh, what sort of patterns did we want to use? How did we want to use the, the twin stick mechanics and, and that sort of thing? So it, it really took a lot of iteration and uh, we even talk about it now. Um, some uh, like a, a little, we have like these little mini postmortems as we go through the projects, just so we kind of uh, feel like we don't uh, keep making mistakes as, as we go, or we don't make those mistakes again is um, we, we feel that uh, we kind of underestimated the whole iteration portion of it. And a lot of like the early game uh, doesn't even exist anymore. Um, we really, like even some of the art assets, actually I would say 100% of the art assets don't don't exist be, uh, that we had before. So it's, you just gotta throw things out and then redo and, and really find that voice of what your game is and what makes it unique. Yeah, the last part there about the creating things, you're having to create things. Creative process is very, very destructive. I know you've mm -hmm. been in the industry for so long, you know that, but it sounds a peculiar thing to say, but it is very destructive because you have to be, and as a writer myself, and I'm writing a piece about something, my first paragraph is rubbish. It's just terrible. <laughs> 
It's just me regurgitating to little ideas and throwing them against the text and going, okay, one of the worst things I've tried to do in the past is try to turn that into something that's digestible. No, Chris, no. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I know one thing Sean worked really hard on, and it, it definitely paid off in the final game is like the idea, we have a lot of floating platforms and stuff like that and trying to find the visual language for those so players would know where to land and uh, dealing with the perspective of things behind it. Like that was a huge challenge uh, in our game and it worked out completely. I, I think there's no real issues with that in the final game. No, it's, it's definitely uh, shows and uh, shines and there's a, Leads me on to almost my next question, almost because I want to talk about the story without revealing too much because it's so core. But the principle of the story is the principal character of the story is Miriam, yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, he's not sentient. And I just want to know, uh, at least I what I can gather from him when I'm playing him, um, how difficult has it been to create a story from what is essentially a beast's perspective or an animal's perspective? Uh, yeah, I think like even from the story perspective, I remember like the early days when we were trying to uh, come up with a, a narrative that um, reflected the mechanic. And we didn't want that to be disjointed in any way. Um, and we had all sorts of ideas floating around because, you know, when you're when you're starting from essentially a blank piece of paper and all you have is like this this cool little mechanic that uh, that you want to implement, it's the narrative is really wide open so we we're really trying to find inspiration uh from like other media and we uh i don't know how it came up or who suggested i think it was you frank that that kind of suggested like this whole creature thing kind of like coming from like this 80s 80s fantasy style like Mm -hmm. uh, like dark crystal like never ending story uh labyrinth and things like that they have like these like crazy like fantastical creatures and, and all set in a world where it's like anything is possible and and we just felt like um it, even coming from a narrative and visual and and the whole uh like project uh as a whole it's like it, we didn't really see a lot of that in in uh in in games like even from like the color choices to creature designs and things like that so we really wanted to um kind of pride ourselves uh, getting inspiration from that and uh developing a story like what what types of stories would it would have happened in kind of like the early to mid 80s and and we decided on kind of like a a, a more simple journey style of story yeah so maybe frank you want to go yeah. into some of the so, narrative to me miram kind of embodies like a perfectly balanced character uh we left most of the narrative, there's no voice acting, text. It's all visual storytelling. Uh, some of that is budgetary. Some of it is like just a unique choice of how to tell a story. So we wanted to present like generic themes through a simple story that people can project what they want onto it. Uh, it doesn't really go out of its way to, to push anything. It's just kind of, a, a, like Sean said, a hero's journey unfolding. Uh, Miram is the embodiment of balance, basically. And uh, the light and dark, every force has a, a counteractive force, a living yin-yang, so to speak. And uh, that just kind of... We, we knew we wanted to experiment with this light and dark puzzle mechanic, so that's kind of where the idea of fusing those together into... Uh, this neutral character on its own combined state came from. And then from there, precipitated down the general themes of the game, such as uh, unity, balance, and the cyclical nature of life. Mm. It's a very brave decision to, to do that, to treat it as like, you know what, let's just see it through the eyes of something that's quite innocent, really. Yeah. It doesn't know what's going on. Can't know what's going on. Can't even doesn't even recognise its own existence, let alone what's going on around it. It just reacts to things that are happening to it in an instinctive way, because that's how they, you know, that's how it is, for the most part. Yes. Oh, it's more complicated than that, because of course it is, because there there is some sin, sin not sentience in we we understand it, not the advanced intellect that we have, but it has something. 
and it is understanding mm-hmm. something, but ultimately it's, it's just trying to not die. <laughs> well, yeah. You know. Well, it's it's trying to save its world as well. Yeah. So there's a, a foreign corruption that's kind of come from an alien world, mm. and Miram is kind of forged fatefully, but also randomly. Like, theoretically, these two characters meet uh, just from avoiding a threat as they've been told, but faithfully it's these two specific ones that get formed into Miram. Yes. So it's a little bit of fate, a little bit of randomness as well. And from there it's, uh, destiny. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just going on and it's the hero's journey, cleansing and saving other creatures within its world that are being affected by this, uh, foreign threat. Mm. My last question, then, is directed pretty much at Sean, I think. Although Frank may pitch in, but it's to do with the presentation of uh, Embers of Miriam. I think it's really exceptional. That's the one thing that struck me when I was walking down and around the booths and the packs. It's like, really was staggered by how exquisite the game looks. Um, Thank you. How have you managed to create such visual and audio splendour uh, with a very high-level engine like Unity. Have you found any difficulty uh, with that, or is it been enabling? Well, well, I, well, we first started the project uh, in Unity 5, and they kind of, like, changed their... Uh, they introduced kind of, like, this PBR workflow, which is, like, physically-based uh, rendering, mm. and they kind of gave their graphics, like, a, an overhaul. And that was still very new to the industry, and and I had never heard of it before. And so, you know, reading papers and things like that, I know they kind of use it in, in uh, like, high-end CG, but uh, not really for games. But it made so much sense to me. Right. And so I was eager to kind of, like, develop within uh, this, this new Unity framework uh, or this new Unity graphics uh, engine. Mm. And from there, uh, we first created, um, uh, what was it, a kind of like a target gameplay video. This is like very early on in, in the project, like the beginning of pre-production. Uh, we, we had kind of like the concept, and now we needed to kind of visualize what, what the manifestation of this high-level concept is going to be. Therefore, we can then talk about it and like camera movements and character interactions, uh, how high they jump, like that, those types of things. It's all pre, like, pre-rendered, kind of like a little cutscene, but all rendered within Unity. And so from there, it really started to like open our eyes in terms of like what was possible in kind of like that two and a half D environment. Mm. Uh, and by for people who don't really know, it's like that two and a half D is like it's still like a perspective camera with three D objects a, as the environment, but all played as a as a two D side scroller. Yeah, i.e. like trying. Uh, so from there, it really kind of started to introduce the challenges in terms of uh, like color palettes, um, uh, distinguishing what was in the background to the foreground to the, the critical path, as we call it, the, what the player uh, actually interacts with. Um, so all of like these new challenges were coming up, and, and it, I really started to like look at. Um, kind of like uh, like color hierarchies and and uh, like these are all kind of like um, things within uh, like concept artists have uh, as challenges they they want to guide your eye somewhere and and uh, it, it's all based off of like the color theory and and, and tones and bringing out like uh, like focal points and things like that so but we had to do this in like a multitude of like screenshots essentially as the players running along yeah. everything needed to make sense yeah so uh in unity uh i mean they're now on unity 5.6 there's lots lots of like new features um that kind of like help our lives make our lives so much easier but it really comes down to the traditional uh uh basics of art and like i said with like that like color theory and uh the visual hierarchies and things like that because we made a lot of mistakes uh previously and we found out what worked and what didn't and the game and the environment and the characters they really started to evolve to really smooth out those rough edges 
and and have it be cohesive and and just make sense like the player just looks at the screen it's like oh i I, I know where the character is. I know what I can interact with and can't interact with. And there's there shouldn't really be any question about that. The subtlety, that's what I wanted to drag out of you, and I'm happy you you spoke about it so so openly, is, is that there is there's a borderline between hand-holding and just giving them a chance, giving the player a chance, rather than, oh, you've got to jump onto that ledge. What ledge? That one. <laughs> there isn't one there. There is there if you get there. I can't see it. Oh yeah, yeah. that <laughs> you can't. Oh yeah, <laughs> because if you yeah. if you, the character's got its own light source, that has its own benefits and negatives. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so and I'm, every game has like those challenges too. Like even shooters, it's like it, it, uh, uh, video games are like happenstantial. Like there's so many per, uh, permutations of like the situations and things like that. So you really have to. Uh, just try and minimalize those those rough edges. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot of developers actually. You know, there's been like twenty or thirty years of development, but you know, the, the designing uh, sensibilities. But when they go, they go back to the earlier NES games and stuff, and go, well, they did that. <laughs> mm-hmm. and that kind of worked. So let's not do that exactly because that's crude. But the idea, we could maybe expand from that. And I've heard that been said. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that's traditional art, really, and and you like art has been around for a very very long time, and uh, it, it all comes down to the basics of of uh, yeah, like color theories and hierarchies and things like that yeah. that really draw your eye to focal points. And it just it's definitely the uh, embers of Miriam has benefited hugely from understanding that. So so well done to you all for, for exploiting that. Thank you. And uh, just to speak to the sound stuff a bit, yes, we should say, yes. like, Paul, Paul did a ton of work for the sound system, uh, like coding-wise and implementing all the sounds. And we had our friend Giancarlo. He did all the music and sound effects, and the music's amazing. It's a huge part of the game. Mm, as, as it should be. As it should be. Yeah. Um, we actually have this cool thing uh, with the, just with the audio really quick. Uh, we have like this layering system, so it kind of matches the situation that Miram is in, whether it's like uh, like platforming, we'll kind of have, we, we have like base ambient tracks, and then based off of the situation, we start to layer onto um, like these different tracks that will then blend into like uh, a chase moment or like platforming or like a thinking track when it's more uh, you're trying to like solve this little environment puzzle. Yeah. It really gives that dynamic and variety. Definitely the sound is uh, mirrors the quality of the, the visual so yeah and uh, it's uh, the, to have it dynamically changed based on the condition of what mirroring Miriam is faced with is is uh, is vital, I think, because it's it gives more I don't know texture to the game itself. So, um, which platforms is it out on? Uh, it's coming out on a PlayStation Four, yeah. Xbox One, and Steam PC, the twenty third. Wow! So, yeah. That's not very far away. Five days. Yeah. <laughs> At the time of recording this show, it's not very far away. So I uh, appreciate your time and effort of actually um, sharing uh, your, your uh, experience with making this incredible game. It really is uh, an astonishing achievement. Um, so I can't congratulate you enough on completing it and sending it out to the world. And also releasing it on three core platforms at the same time like that. That's amazing. Um, so that's not usual. Normally, it's like PS4 or Xbox One and Windows PC. I've found, but to do yeah. all three like that—that's that's. I mean, the architecture isn't as different as it used to be, um, but it's still. Well, you you definitely know that. I mean, you probably mm-hmm. you know these machines, these later machines. I say later, but they've been out four years now. I keep mm-hmm. on reminding yeah. people it's fourth year now. Is it? Is yeah, a couple of, no, and, and definitely like we're running. Uh, like at, on the consoles, like we're at 1080p at 60 frames a second, yeah. and that was like a, quite a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, going back into like 360 days, where it's like you, you know, it, you had like 30 frames per second at like 720. It's like 
yeah, all being had like 512 megs of, of uh, space, yeah. but uh, memory. But uh, yeah, in a 30, 30 FPS environment, I, I feel like game development is pretty easy. In, in parentheses, of course, easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's still hard. Yeah. But uh, it, it definitely, we encountered some unique challenges when we, in terms of optimization, when we went, when we decided to go to 1080p at 60 frames per second. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Paul, Paul, our technical programmer, he did some really awesome stuff towards the end of the project to to get us where we're at. Has so. the um, the pro and stuff like that helped at all, or have you not been bothered? Like, oh yeah, oh, they're right. they're beasts. They're beasts of machines. <laughs> uh, they really are. I do have and, a pro myself like because of the um, PSVR. It's, it works so much better with it, but. Uh, yeah, it's the rendering when you're moving your head around left and right rather than mm. it sort of not rendering what you can't see, it actually pushes that out a little bit more so you don't mm-hmm. see the blur at all. It makes it a lot of Yeah, and also there's so so many more restrictions placed on like VR, like a VR development. Uh, uh, I believe it's like 90 FPS that you have to be at yeah. at all times yeah. uh, for, for the PlayStation Pro. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Quite, quite challenging, but but for our games, it's like the uh, Embers of Mirror runs fantastic. It does, it does, and uh, hopefully we might see it on a certain other platform we were talking about earlier. Who knows? But that's another time. <laughs> yeah, we'd love, we'd love to. We'd love to. Because it would work so well, wouldn't it? Come on. Jeez, mm-hmm. wow, that would just oh, it would sing on that machine. Anyway. Um, gents it's been fantastic having you on thank you so so much for being so open and honest about the creation of Embers of Miriam it's been great having you on thank you for having us it's been, a, been an absolute delight yeah it's, uh, so very best of luck with it and uh, yeah we hope to speak to you again soon awesome thanks a lot Chris really appreciate it and so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory do leave us an iTunes review and you can also don't forget listen to us on stitcher.com so just go to stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there you just look up the Sausage Factory and you can find us that'd be great you can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan no apostrophes and uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show, or actually you're a developer, you listen to the show and want your game featured on it, please do email me at chris at spong.com. Also, don't forget to check out the Computer Game Show, which is the stablemate podcast, shall we say, of spong.com. Bye! <laughs>